Well, this morning, we are continuing our series called Life After Life. And we've been uh, answering questions, dealing with questions about the hereafter. And I want to encourage you to get your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And today, we are going to consider the question, what is hell like? And you'll find uh, in your bulletin a, a, a handout, an insert that will help you in following along. You know, one of the most famous sculptures in the world is one called uh, The Thinker. It's by Rodin. And uh, you've no doubt seen pictures of it. Maybe you've even seen a replica of it. Uh, this figure is, uh, is hunched over in a seated position. His, uh, his uh, fist is pressed against his, uh, his mouth. His head is bowed. His brow is furrowed. His, his muscles are tense. His, his toes are gripping the, the pedestal upon which he sits. And the question that many have asked is, what is the thinker thinking about? And some have uh, uh, jokingly suggested that since he's sitting there with no clothes, uh, you know, what did I do with my clothes? But what the thinker is thinking about is no joking matter. It's far more serious, darker. Um, significant and profound. You see, the thinker is thinking about hell. Rodin sculpted this figure to sit atop his great masterpiece called The Gates of Hell, which was inspired by Dante's epic poem uh, called The Inferno. And The Inferno describes hell. And it's as if, you see, the gates of hell have been opened to this man to look in to the horror before him. That's why he's so tense. That's why he is so uh, strained in his position. That's why he's contemplating so hard what is before him. And in the passage before us today, Jesus does a very similar thing. Jesus opens the gates of hell for us and allows us a view into hell, a unique perspective, nowhere else found in Scripture. It's a a view of life after death for the unbelieving. And, And I know of nothing more sobering, nothing more disturbing, and nothing more important than contemplating the reality of hell. Does God want people to go to hell? Well, according to Scripture, the answer is absolutely not. God wants everyone to spend eternity with him in heaven. Even in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 33 and verse 11, uh, it says, God says, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's what God wants. We have a similar kind of verse in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but to come to repentance. However, the Bible is equally clear that apart from turning to Christ in faith and, and putting your, your full confidence in Him that people do die and go to hell and spend eternity there. Now, unfortunately, Many people in our culture do not understand this reality. I told you last week that about the survey that was conducted by the Barna Research Group that showed that 81% of people believe in some form of afterlife. And uh, another of, the, of that 81%, 76% believe that there is a literal place called heaven. 
almost that same number believe in a place called hell, according to the survey. 71% say they believe in hell. But there is a wide variation about what people think hell actually means. 39% say that hell is simply separation from God, and they don't even think of that all the time as something negative. Another 18% say that hell is just a symbol for bad things that happen in people, or maybe a, a, a negative outcome after death. Only 32% say that they believe that hell is a literal place of torment. Now, when you consider everybody together, only one half of 1%, I hear that, one half of 1% believe there's any possibility that they will ever be experiencing hell. So in essence, nobody thinks they're going to hell. And the tragedy is that most people who end up in hell are going to be shocked to find themselves there. Shocked that they end up there. And this is important to understand because in this, in the context of Luke chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who believe there is no chance that they will ever end up in hell. And they, they believe that for many reasons, but one of them, the one that he is targeting at this point, is that they believe that because they were wealthy, because they were well off, that God was, it was a sign that God was pleased with them and that they were being blessed by God. In the first part of Luke chapter 16 and verse 14, he says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And so Jesus gives them this shocking example of a rich person who surprisingly ends up in hell. And today we're going to join the thinker in looking into hell. And seeing what Jesus says hell is really like. Now, too often as Christians, we don't live or pray or witness like we believe that people are really going to hell. We live our lives like everybody's fine. We don't seem to have a concern. We don't seem to have a real burden for that. But my prayer is that today that God would give us a burden for people that are lost and an understanding that they are facing a real hell in their future without Christ. When somebody dies without Jesus, they do not go to the Bahamas. They don't go to Hawaii. They don't go on vacation. They go to a place of horrible torment. You say, why are you bringing this up? You know, lost people would be glad if I didn't bring it up. They don't want to hear it. You know what? They love darkness rather than light. They don't want to hear about this. But unfortunately, see, it's also true with God's people. We don't like to hear it. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. If you study this like I did, you put as much time studying this, it'll make you sick to your stomach. It'll, it'll make you very uncomfortable. It, it'll, it, it's disturbing. But I think we need to hear it, what God has to say about this. See, this message is for lost people. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, you need to deal with that today. Don't leave here without dealing with that. But as much as this is a a message for lost people, it is even more a message for saved people. Because, you see, God wants us to have a heart for lost people. He wants us to pray for people that are lost. He wants us to talk to people about Jesus who are lost. He wants us to warn them. 
So I, I want you to read with me this great passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child... Remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that they may be, that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have revealed such incredible truth to us. And we pray, God, that your spirit would work in our midst today. Oh, God, that you would stir our hearts with compassion for the lost world around us. Oh, Lord, that you would turn us and give us your love for people, that you give us your boldness. And, Lord, I pray for those that have not truly trusted you. I pray for those that, that are under the delusion that they're really going to heaven, but are not. God, may you open their eyes to that reality today and help them to turn to Jesus in faith. And Lord, I pray you would move me out of the way so that I'm, I'm not a hindrance, but Lord, that you could use me as a vessel to say what you want to your people today. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, some people say that this story is a parable rather than an actual event. And it's possible. I mean, you can make arguments, you know, both sides. It goes both ways. But here's, here's, here's what's, what matters. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a parable or whether it isn't. Because this represents a story that Jesus is telling us to give us a clear picture of what hell is really like. And that's the point that Jesus wants to make. He wants us to know what it's really like. And and in this story, there are two lives. Uh, And there's an extreme contrast between these two lives. One was enormously wealthy. We don't know his name. He's just called a rich man. And he, he lived a comfortable life. I mean, he has beautiful clothing, dyed in purple. In those days, that was a sign of of wealth. 
and he had a fine home in a gated community. Uh, he, he, he had sumptuous food. Every meal was a, was a feast. He had anything he wanted. Anything that money could buy, he had it. He enjoyed it. But there was another man. His name was Lazarus. And he was poor. Literally, he was an impoverished beggar. He had no home. He may even have been crippled, as it says that he was laid at the gate of the, of the rich man. And, and, he, and he had no food. He was longing to be fed from the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And he, he had these running sores all over him. And the only attention that he got were from the mangy dogs in the street that would come and lick his sores. This is how destitute this man was. And Jesus establishes this, this extreme contrast for an important reason. You see, he's contrasting the, the health and wealth of one man against the, the poverty and the sickness of another because of this belief that they had in those days that if you were healthy and wealthy, God's pleased with you. You're blessed. And they said that they saw sickness and poverty as a sign that God was displeased with you. And so, just contrast these two lives. But then there, then there are two deaths. The poor man died. And it says, and the rich man also died. Death is certain for everyone. It's certain for the rich and for the poor, for the young and for the old, for the healthy as well as the sick. Everybody dies. And it's certain. And you know, we don't like to think about that. We like to, you know, avoid that as as much as possible. When we're young, we don't even think very much at all. We, you know, we're almost, we're invisible, invincible. But then when you start getting older, you start thinking about it more. And then you, you, when somebody dies, have you ever found yourself asking, well, well, how old were they? You like to hear they're just a little younger, a little older than you, right? <laughs> and and if, they, if they happen to be younger than you, well, we want to hear that there was some exception to their death that we don't share. See, it just makes us very uncomfortable, the whole idea. And there were two lives, two deaths, but then there are two destinies. Because it, he, he tells us that, that Lazarus was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That is, he's taken to where Abraham was by his side. Remember Abraham? He's the first believer among the Jews. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham is, is represents the believers. And it, when he went to his side, he was going to a place of comfort, a place in the presence of God, a place where those who have trusted God and have been saved by his grace are. This is, the, this is Lazarus. But then the rich man it says he went to Hades. Now, in the New Testament, Hades is always refers to the place where the wicked go awaiting their final judgment and sentencing before they're cast into the lake of fire. Now, understand, this is not the final hell. This is not the lake of fire. But it is a place where the souls of the wicked go, awaiting their judgment. And last week, you remember we learned that when believers die, their souls go immediately into the presence of the Lord, not their bodies, because there they're awaiting the return of Christ, where their bodies will be, where our bodies will be resurrected, and we will live with Christ in a new heaven, a new earth, forever and ever. And, and in Hades is the place where the unbelieving go, well, their souls go awaiting their judgment and their resurrection. 
Now, one of the questions that has come to me, and by the way, our groups, we give you out some, gave some cards out. If you've got questions you'd like for us to answer, we're going to try to answer those in the course of this series, do our best to do that. Well, one question was, do, uh, do unbelievers have resurrected bodies? Have you ever heard that question before? Do unbelievers have resurrected bodies? Well, the answer is yes, they absolutely do. Everyone will eventually be resurrected. Uh, Jesus says this in John chapter 5 and verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There's a resurrection for the righteous and there's a resurrection for the judgment, believers and unbelievers alike. The righteous, those who have trusted Christ, will be resurrected with a body fit for eternal life in heaven with Jesus Christ. Those who are resurrected uh, unbelieving will have a body fit for judgment in hell. So there's two lives. There there are are two uh, destinies of these men and two resurrections. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time having you think with me about four uh, facts about hell as it's revealed here in this passage. And first, Jesus tells us that hell is an actual place. Hell is an actual place. Look at verse 22. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now notice, in Hades. Hades is a place, an actual place. And it is a distant place. It's far away from Abraham. And in this place, there is torment. Why do people make jokes about hell when it's a place of torment? I think it's simply because we want to minimize its seriousness. Uh, We want to diminish the severity of that idea. Why do people use profanity and they, they use the word hell? Why do people, you know, people will say, you know, well, what the hell? What does that mean? It means nothing. It's just emptying the word of any meaning. It, it just, it's just trivializing it. And some people would say, well, I don't like to think about hell. I understand that. Why do people compare uh, negative earthly circumstances to hell. You know, my job is hell. My marriage is hell. On and on. When in reality, what kind of circumstances you're, you're experiencing here on earth will never even touch in any regard what you're going to experience in hell. You see, it's just it's an attempt to, to lessen it, to minimize it. And hell is real. You can't believe anything that Jesus says if you can't believe what he says about hell. You realize that? You can't believe anything else he says if you don't believe this. The Bible has a lot to say about the reality of hell. And we certainly don't have time to go through it all. I mean, do an exhaustive study of that. But let me just share with you a couple things that may be helpful. Revelation 20 and verse 10 says... And the devil, the devil who, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, look what all that tells us. It's a lake of fire and brimstone. It's where the devil will be. It's where other unbelievers will be. 
It's where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's incomprehensible to our human minds. And Matthew chapter 13 verse 41 says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into a furnace of fire in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this is, this is horrible stuff. Verse 49 will continue. So, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into a furnace of fire in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does it sound to you like Jesus is trying to warn us about something serious? Miroslav Volf, V-O-L-F, Volf, is a Christian theologian from Croatia. He used to reject the concept of God's wrath. And he, he, he thought the idea, he said, of, a, of an angry God was, was barbaric and completely unworthy of a God of love. But something happened to change his view. His nation went through a war. And they experienced brutal circumstances. People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors. And in his book, Free of Charge, he reveals why he has a change of heart about his ideas concerning God's wrath. Here's what he says. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My, my people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. And I omitted much detail there. Or, or think of... Rwanda, in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death with machetes in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodshed, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. As I think about it, the strongest reason for me for believing in hell is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why would God allow his only begotten son to come into this world and be placed on a cross to suffer unbelievingly agony? If, if hell were not a reality, then every mouthful of spit that was splattered on his face, every handful of beard that was plucked from his cheeks, every lash that was laid across his back, every fist that pounded his face, every thorn that punctured his brow, every labored breath that he took upon the cross, all of Calvary would be for no purpose if there were no hell. Jesus came into the world to deliver you and I from sin and death and hell. He took our hell on the cross. Hell is an actual place. But hell is also an agonizing place. In verse 23, he continues, 
in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now notice that the Bible says that when he lifts up his eyes in Hades, he is in torment. This man is conscious. He is aware of what is happening, and he is suffering intensely. The rich man is aware of how far away he is from God's goodness. And this rich man cries out for mercy. And he begs Father Abraham, just send Lazarus to me. He still sees Lazarus as a servant to come and do what needs to be done for him. Just send him over here and just just let him touch the, the tip of his fingers with water on my tongue for I am in agony in this place. He doesn't ask for an ocean of water. He doesn't ask for a river of water. He doesn't even ask for a cup of water. He just asks for one drop of water on a fingertip. He says, I will welcome one millisecond of relief in this place. That's eternity without Christ. That's a place of agony. The New York Times recently carried a piece that, that talked about the unprecedented power of Hurricane Harvey. And meteorologists were at a loss as how to describe it. I mean, it, it stretched their vocabulary. In the past, they had used language like <coughs> killer storm when they had turned out to be much less intense or deadly than what they had been predicted. So they knew that in this case, they had their words really mattered. And, and Dennis uh, Feltkin with the National Weather Service Hurricane Center in, in Miami said this, quote, we wanted to convey the message that this is a storm that can kill you. So we used words like catastrophic, life-threatening. And finally, when people didn't seem to take those words seriously, we began using the phrase, beyond anything ever experienced. Why did they do that? Because they were seeking to communicate to people the seriousness of the storm and to save lives. That people would, would take protective measures, that people would evacuate, that they would do what they needed to do to, to take care of themselves. How did Jesus describe hell? Torment, flames, agony. He's not using hyperbole. He's not using these words for effect. He's using these words so that we will know that this is something beyond anything ever experienced. It is something we need to take very seriously. Jesus says the agony of hell is so severe that it is worth doing anything you need to do to avoid it. In Mark chapter 9... In verse 43, he says this. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's it's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, he says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet than to be cast into hell. And he says in verse 47, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is saying, friend, it would be better for you to do anything that you had to do to escape hell. If your, if your hand is doing something that causes you to sin, you are better off to cut it off. If your foot is taking you places, sinful places, you are better just to cut it off. 
If your eye is causing you to look at things that are sinful, you're better off to pluck it out. It would be better for you to be maimed in this life than to go through life whole and then to be cast into hell for all eternity. Why is Jesus warning us about this? Why is he being so serious? I mean, this seems so extreme. Why? Listen, because this is human nature. Look at verse verse 25 of Luke 16. But, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he has been comforted here and you are in agony. Do you get it? All of us are prone to choose the immediate pleasures of this life now. We want our good things now. We want to live my life. I want to be in control of my life. I want to do what I want to do. I want myself to be happy. And that's the tendency for every one of us is to choose the now rather than obedience to Christ. And he says, listen, this is serious. There's an unquenchable fire where the worm never dies. It's beyond anything ever experienced. It's a place of agony. Number three, hell is an always place. When the rich man asked Lazarus to give him some relief, Abraham told him, he said, it was impossible. In verse 26, he says, And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. What's Abraham saying? He's saying that you're an always place. It's, it, it, there's a great chasm. It's fixed. A great chasm, a great separation, and it's fixed. It's permanent. It's it's. It's forever. See, you all hear these people that are going to hell and coming back. Nobody goes to hell and comes back. You get it? There you have it from Jesus. He's talking about eternal punishment for sin. He's talking about eternal separation from God. He's talking about eternal confinement with your misery and every other sinner that has walked the earth. When people go to hell, they don't go to hell to party. Have you heard that? We're going to party with our friends. Friends, people, you have a total misunderstanding of hell if you think that. When people go to hell, they don't go to hell to sin. You go to hell because of your sin. It goes on forever and ever and ever. It is a hopeless place because it is an always place. There is no parole. There is no getting out. There is no changing. It is eternal. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of what? Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Listen, some people have this notion. People are believing these TV preachers everywhere that you go and suffer for a while and then you can get out. God will forgive you. There's a second chance. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's eternal destruction. It goes on forever and ever. In Matthew 25, 41, it says, Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And you remember what happens to the devil and his angels? They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How could it be any clearer? In verse 46, Jesus says, These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now, you see what Jesus does here? Very clear. He puts eternal punishment on the same scale with eternal life. However long eternal life lasts, eternal punishment lasts. Several years ago, 
a 19-year-old man named uh, Jonathan Bardino uh, devised a way to steal from retail stores. He downloaded a program that enabled him to make his own barcodes. And so he would take uh, barcodes that he had made to the store, say for a $29.95 CD player, and he would take the the barcode for that and he would place it on a more expensive stereo system that retailed for $249.99, and he would walk out the store with this high-end item at the price of this low-end item. And he did this for several years. But eventually, he was caught by a security guard who noticed that he was trying to pay $4.99 for an iPod that cost $149.99. And when police arrested him, he began to cry. And he fell on the floor, and he kicked his feet, and he begged that they let him go. And he kept saying, please, please, please let me go. I'm just a kid. I didn't, I didn't realize what was happening. Please, please. And he cried. And he grabbed the policeman's leg and just begged. They investigated and found the extent of his crimes. And they charged him with a fifth-degree uh, fifth felony for um, forgery. They did that because he was guilty. And he wrote a statement then to the attorney general, and he said, I'm terribly sorry. Please let me go. Please. I'm just a kid. Let me out. I just want to go home. I didn't know the seriousness of what I was doing. Please let me go. Please let me go. I just want to go home. Those words echo through the corridors of hell for all eternity. Please let me go. Hell is an always place, and it needs to be taken seriously. But friends, it's not being. You know, we live in a culture that can't even discipline their kids. There's real no real consequence. They learn there's really, I can get out of it. Uh, really, at the end, I'm just a kid. You know, and we don't, we don't realize the seriousness of what we're talking about. But here, here's some good news. Hell is an avoidable place. At this point, you see, the rich man has come to the terrifying realization that he is never going to leave there. And so he says in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. See, now he's, he's concerned about his family. He recognizes that they are living under the same belief system and the same lifestyle that, that ended him in judgment. And the only hope that he sees for them is if someone comes to them from the dead. That's the only thing that he can think of that is going to change their minds. And so he says in verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Notice that Abraham affirms the sufficiency of Scripture to save someone. But, he, but this man contradicts Abraham. He, says, he said to him, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, this man understands correctly that his brothers need to repent. Repent means to have a change of mind, a change of heart that results in the change in the way you live. They need to repent, but he is dead wrong about what it is that brings about this repentance. He's pleading for a supernatural sign. He's saying, man, if somebody from the dead came to them, will they all believe? But let me remind you that there has already been one who is named Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. And then a short time later, there was one named Jesus who was raised from the dead. And those people kept, those Pharisees kept asking for a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign. But when they were raised from the dead, they didn't believe anyway. 
He's, he is saying, I don't believe Scripture alone is sufficient to bring about salvation. They need something more. And friends, can I tell you this? You may not understand this fully, but pastors and churches all over America are believing that lie. They are turning away from preaching the Word of God and substituting human wisdom and ideas and psychology in place of the Word of God, hoping to give people their good now. But But verse 31 says, But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Why is that? It's because at heart, you see, repentance is, is not a moral, is a, is a moral issue, not an intellectual issue. No matter how much evidence you get, it will never turn unbelief into faith. Only the Word of God can do that. That's why Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing what? Hearing the word of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes. See, friends, it's the word of God that people need to hear in order to repent and be saved. That's the only thing, only resource you have at your disposal for the people that you know that need Jesus. That's all. Nothing else you can do. Everything else comes short. You need to tell them the truth of the gospel. I That's why we have an, an Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Do you know that? That's why we have that. Because we believe that people, lost people, need to be prayed for. We believe that lost people need to have someone to go with them, to them with the, with the truth of the gospel. That's why we take up this money. So that we can send people. Now, sending people doesn't mean that we're not responsible to do our part. But that's why we're doing it. And by the way, the very first uh, uh, person we're, we're praying for this week is Taylor Field, who is the pastor at Graffiti, the Graffiti Churches in New York, where we've been, our mission teams have been working in the past summer. So I want to encourage you to take that and pray for those people. They were praying for lost people. Pray for them. Love them enough to pray for them. You see, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he made a way for you to escape hell. Most people remain unconvinced. And it's, it's tragic that unbelievers remain unconvinced and will not escape hell. But you know something that's equally as tragic? is when God's people do not remain unconvinced enough that they will not speak the gospel to people they know and love. This rich man, the first thing he wants to do when he gets in hell is evangelize his family. But it's too late then. It's too late. His name was Charlie Peace. That's a strange name for a criminal, but he was a well-known criminal in England. And on July 4th, 1854, he died on the gallows in London. And they were walking him to be hanged And behind him, there was an Anglican clergyman. And at that time, the Anglican church had what they called a service, a reading, for hangings. And this Anglican uh, minister was walking behind Charlie Peace, reading this service. And it comes to the part that says, Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. And when Charlie Peace heard those chilling words, he stopped and he turned, put his face in the face of this Anglican minister, and he says, do you really believe that? The man is shocked and he regains his posture and he says, well, yes, yes I do. 
And he said, well, I don't. If I believed that, I would crawl on my hands and knees across Great Britain, even if it were paved with shards of broken glass, if I could free at least one from what you say will happen to people that die without Christ. Let me ask you, do you believe in hell? Do you believe it's an actual place? Do you believe it's an agonizing place? Do you believe it's an always place? Do you believe that it's an avoidable place? Well, anyone who is going to avoid it will avoid it because somebody speaks the gospel to that person. Amen? And you know, there are, we, 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 as a church, we say that our purpose is to fulfill the Great Commission in the passion of the Great Commandment. You know what we're saying? We're saying we love people enough to take the gospel to them. That's what we're saying. That we simply love God and we love people enough to speak to them. That's, what we're, that's all we're saying. And it may, be, it may cost us to do it. It may cost us money. It may cost us time. It may cost us influence. It may cost us friends. But it, it costs us something. But we love them enough. We don't have to go there and experience the horror of it before we're ready to talk to them. And I want to encourage you to think about there are people in your family that you love They need to be prayed for regularly. There are people that you love, that that you need to talk to. Oh, friends, there are people that you need to invite to church to hear the gospel preached. Love them. Love them. God loves them. That's why he sent Christ, so they don't have to have that. This horrible place. Hell is an avoidable place. Let's pray.